This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Lara Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton and People Analytics, and our phones are open. 1-844-WHARTON, that's 844-942-7866, and we're taking calls. That's 844-WHARTON, and we'd love for you to join in the conversation. We're going to be talking today with Elizabeth Vale about personal passion and private practicalities, the public and private sectors, and how she built a career that knit all of it together at the highest level levels of business and government. So join in the fun and give us a ring. That's 1-844-WHARTON-844-942-7866. Do you want to get involved in politics or support a candidate you believe in? Give us a call and we'll talk about how. And while you dial in, I'm going to tell you a little more about today's guest who's here in the studio with me. Elizabeth Vale is Senior Managing Director at Promontory Interfinancial Group, a distinguished fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute of Government and a senior fellow in the McNulty Leadership Program. After spending about 22 years in finance, which included her work as Managing Director at Morgan Stanley, Elizabeth shifted into politics and worked on both sides of the aisle. She was a legislative assistant in economic policy for Senator John Hines and a senior advisor for Elizabeth Warren's Senate campaign. She served as the Director of the Division of External Affairs at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where she had primary responsibility for the Bureau's engagement with Capitol Hill. And she was also the White House Business Liaison and Executive Director of the White House Business Council during the Obama administration. Here in the Philadelphia area, she's on the board of two of our most cherished institutions, the Broad Street Ministry and the Curtis Institute of Music, and a role model and inspiration to students throughout Wharton and Penn. So with that, let me say, Elizabeth, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much, Laura. It's great to be here. So, you know, hearing your bio, we know that you built this bridge in your career and life between business and politics that you've traversed for a while now. Before we talk about how and why you built that bridge, I'd like to know a little bit about how your career started. How and why did you wind up in banking when you clearly loved politics? <laughs> well, actually, I uh, I did have two parallel careers in the end. And the first one I was very practical about. I was actually 22, and this is more than you need to know, but I was uh, engaged to a lovely man who was heading to Penn Law School, and I had to find a job in Philadelphia. And I was at Harvard at the time, and the only, this is silly, the only um, Philadelphia-based company that interviewed at Harvard was the Philadelphia National Bank. So I said, okay, I'm going to go there. Whatever the heck they do, they'll pay me, and I can (laughs) pay the rent. So uh, that is how I got into banking, and it's not a very... um, glamorous or focused uh, story. Well, it's not maybe glamorous or focused. It's actually sort of romantic and practical at the same time. (laughs) It was. The things we do for love. Yeah. Well, it was that. And practical is is absolutely what it was. And I really didn't have a passion or a mission then. And I learned to find it later. But I I just had to pay the rent. And it did. It did that. (laughs) And I married the man. So there you go. Okay. So I'll... So that's going well. Yeah, still married to him, and that's a long time. <laughs> well done. Thank you. You were in finance at a time, and particularly when you had just started your career, that was notoriously hard for women, even worse than it is now. Mm-hmm. The pay gap was greater. The underrepresentation was mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, and many women who got senior roles were often the only ones on the team. Mm-hmm. What was what was it like for you then? Mm-hmm. What was your experience? Mm-hmm. 
So I started very early. Uh, I, I now look back and realize we were trailblazing, and I didn't really know it at the time, except after a while you realize you're one of a f- very few women in, in a room or in a program. But I started working in 1977, and it was when we used to wear bow ties and you know look, try to look like men and act like men and be like men, and that was kind of the way we were doing it. Um, I survived. I loved a challenge. I knew that I could do it. All right. I, no, I didn't know I could do it. I tried very hard to do it. And I, I just, I'm stubborn and determined and, and ambitious. And I was going to try and make it work. And I did um, well, after a long while. But I don't know if I'm answering your question. I, basically, I, I bonded with other peers as opposed to uh, older women because there really weren't any any older, many older women at all working. And so my peers, of whom there were many who started in that training program at, at my bank, um, were wonderful, And they, but they were peers as opposed to older, mm-hmm. more successful people. And we, we supported each other tremendously, and I think that's really key, and I've stayed in touch with a lot of them, actually, and we, we, uh, we did it together. So it's not surprising that you found a kind of band of sisters mm-hmm. to support you mm-hmm. as you went through mm-hmm. it, um, if only to you know survive every day. Mm-hmm. You also moved up the ladder and wound up taking on enormous financial responsibility. There had to have been people at other levels of the organization mm-hmm. that were seeing your talents, mm-hmm. even mentoring you. Mm-hmm. Who helped you along the way? Well, first I'd say I, I didn't really didn't have enormous um, financial whatever you just noted. <laughs> <laughs> but I I, uh, I survived for sure. And I think a lot of it is I, I just lasted. I lasted it. I stayed and um, I was persistent. But um, in terms of who was there um, and who helped me, I actually, in looking back, I ended up having in my life three women mentors, which was unusual because, of course, there weren't a lot of us then. But through my really three sort of three career paths in a way uh, across my life, my most significant mentors, and when I look back, were very were three very senior women. And I must have migrated to them, and I didn't even realize at the time I must have been magnetized to them, almost as a comfort that they were there and I could try to be close to them and try to be like them. And they were very nurturing and very supportive of me, and they they believed in me. And I, I, I may be getting ahead of your questions, but no, I, you're right there. I I um I was able to achieve what they could see in me, and I hadn't been able to. And I felt like now, looking back, I see this pattern, but it obviously was almost self medicating in a way <laughs> for me that I, I really. In some place in the middle of me, I wanted to be near them. I wanted to be, this is terrible to say, protected by them in a way and inspired by them. And they really believed in me. And I, so I thought, well, my God, I guess if you think I can do this project or this role that you've given me or this title, I'm really going to try and do it. And I, I knew in a way they wouldn't really be terribly disappointed if I didn't, but they, they thought I could and they read me and, and we, we all did it together. So. Elizabeth, I love that you say that you wanted to be protective. I don't think there's anything wrong in it because there's a I think the critical thing is Mm -hmm. you didn't need to be protected as much as it's very Mm -hmm. human to Mm -hmm. acknowledge that we all get scared. Mm -hmm. We all can feel vulnerable. And that when we Mm -hmm. and that senior people in the organization Mm -hmm. make us feel safe. Mm -hmm. I think you were just able to give language to feelings that a lot of people try and pretend aren't there. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. It it does sound sort of, you know, small and I don't know, maybe 
too female in a way, some people think, but it, it was comforting. Now I look back again and I can acknowledge it. At the time, I, I couldn't have put words to it, and mm-hmm. I didn't see that there would be a pattern of three of these situations uh, right until I was, you know, nearly 60. But, yeah, it was comforting for sure, and it's in a way kind of a life preserver or a, a safety net or a um, parachute. You know, you can jump out a plane if you think somebody's holding your hand and you got a parachute too. So part of what I'm hearing in the way you talked about these relationships and how they formed was that you saw them, you admired them, mm-hmm. you wanted to be like mm-hmm. them. How did you create the relationship? Did you knock on the door and say, mm-hmm. hi, you're awesome, please mm-hmm. mentor me? Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it was something a little more subtle than that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was more subtle than that. Um, I happen to be a people person and an extrovert. And these three individuals actually are introverts and much more academic than I am. Um, although I have an academic background and I was trained in an Ivy League and this and that for what it's worth, Um I'm not particularly academic and I don't really like analyzing things and being in a back room and thinking hard and uh, doing research. And they were that type. Now, they were way senior to me, but they were definitely introverts and definitely academic. And so I, I, in a sense, again, it was instinctive. I don't think I thought about it, but I was drawn to them because, and vice versa, it appears, because... Uh, I could do things they didn't want to do, and mm-hmm. I they were doing things I couldn't do and didn't want to do, therefore. <laughs> and so together, one of them actually said to me, you know, together we're a whole person, which I've never <laughs> forgotten. That was my very first mentor, actually, my, Mor- my Morgan my Morgan Stanley mentor. And she said that, and it really resonated because well, it was very complimentary, obviously, but, you know, you don't really value what you can do. And then someone says, wow, what you do is something I really want and compliments me with an E compliments. And so together, in a way, I was just drawn to that. And and it felt, again, comfortable. And they were obviously drawn to it too, in a way. So together, we were better. I love the way that you describe it. It reinforces advice. I, um, I think it was actually Sheryl Sandberg, who I first heard talk about it, of when people approach her for mentorship, mm-hmm. when they're coming to her with new ideas, projects they want to do, things that take an idea or a vision and bring it to life, there's a natural way of partnering. Mm-hmm. And that idea that together you make a whole person. Mm-hmm. How can a junior person come to a senior person? And it sounds like when you're filling needs that aren't met, when you're creating new opportunities, mm-hmm. everybody finds value in that. And then mm-hmm. the relationship is built in what you're building together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and not to advertise, but do you remember the BASF ads? I don't know if you're you're probably not old enough, but BASF had these great ads. And it was, you know, I don't make the X, I make it better. And um, I love that. And it, it stayed and resonated with me because that's how I feel now that I'm older. I realize, wow, what I'm what I'm pretty good at, which is not everything, but certainly the people relationships and the outreach uh, and the communication and the illustration of what someone's proposing in, in an academic policy way. I'm good at illustrating that and bringing people on board and convincing them it's a decent idea. And that's really the BASF ad. I, I don't make the idea or the policy or the, you know, the whatever, the, the sort of difficult thing to create, frankly, <laughs> in my mind. But I, I, can, I can illustrate it. I can uh, advocate for it and I can bring it home, hopefully, for that person. It's it's a volleyball game. They this is a silly analogy, but they this person who I'm not um would serve the ball and I would put it down the field. 
and together you bring it on home. Well, hopefully, hopefully somebody gets it over the net. One, <laughs> one of us. <laughs> you <We> score. <laughs> you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School here on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Elizabeth Vale, Distinguished Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute of Government, as well as Senior Managing Director at Promontory Interfinancial Group. So, Elizabeth, I want to take half a step back, because one of the things that you were talking about, which is interesting in now that we know what an extrovert you can be, was that um, you had metal. When you entered your career, you said you were stubborn, you were determined, you worked hard, but confidence was something that you had to develop. Mm -hmm. Talk to me Mm -hmm. about how you operated, how you built that confidence and what its relationship is to your extroversion. Is it separate Mm -hmm. from it? Does one enhance the other? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, um, yeah, I am I now know an extreme extrovert, actually. Um, and <laughs> I think you have to learn who you are, obviously, and what you are. And for me, I didn't know what that was when I certainly was born. I, I married someone and my daughter. They, they were born knowing they wanted to be a lawyer and a doctor, and I had absolutely none of that. So I really ended up working because I had to get out of the house and, as I said, pay the rent and educate my kids when they came along. And I, excuse me, I am, um, so I just, you know, put one foot in front of the other. The first jobs were not perfect. They were highly academic, actually, because I'd been in an academic environment. People assumed I was an academic smart person. And (laughs) and I I got there. I kind of did it. I ate my peas, so to speak. I got some credentials like the CFA, which was hard for me. But I realized, you know, this is not, I'm not really shining in these roles. And so I felt my way, I felt my way into marketing and client services and the advocacy of, of other people's ideas, as I said. And that built my confidence gradually. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question. That does. It's that the the drive to connect with other mm-hmm. people. And it's when we think about how many how often we hear people talking about how do you find your passion and purpose, mm-hmm. not to belittle it, mm-hmm. but that, you know, it's something mm-hmm. that a lot of people right. struggle with. How do I find the best way of putting me to use in a way that I'm going to, you know, be happy with and thrive right. and work well? And that it it sounds like mm-hmm. you first found your way to work mm-hmm. that fit you, mm-hmm. that was right for mm-hmm. you. And mm-hmm. from that, more mm-hmm. confidence grew. Absolutely. And I think, again, I, I think I repeat myself here, but in school, for example, I always thought the, 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 the smartest people in my class, the most academic, the perfect boards, the perfect straight A's would be the ones to rule the world, really, I mean, in the good sense, rule the world. Well, that's what we were told. Right, right. And so, well, because because school is about academics, largely. Mm-hmm. And so that's the measure, that's the yardstick. And I did fairly well, but I certainly wasn't the top of my class or in the perfect boards at all. And and when I got out in life, so to speak, <laughs> I realized, wow, my people skills are actually valuable. They're not insignificant and other people don't have them. How amazing. And you always think what you do is easy and therefore it's not very valuable yes. because it comes naturally to you. And so I was always trying to get those academic credentials and I did get them. But I then I realized, wow, what I have is actually valuable to other people who don't have it. And so I, I repeat that, but, you know, you, you can really find your your niche and, and you feel it. I felt it. I would follow. I, I was magnetized to the people roles and I finally realized, okay, that's okay. You know, it's not uh, a, a not valuable thing. It's a valuable place to be and it adds value and I can lead with what's easy for me. And it's no less important just because it's easy. Well, I still don't believe it. <laughs> I still don't believe it. I believe I'm a fraud the way most of us do um, when I get to a reasonably high level. 
But I, I, yeah, I'm comfortable now. It's like, okay, to heck with it. This is what I love. I'm doing it. And it seems to work out. How did that self-awareness mm-hmm. um, time out with um, your work at Morgan Stanley and when you made the decision mm-hmm. to downshift? Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good word, actually, downshift. It's a bit of an um, automobile word, but it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think you've heard this on-ramp and off-ramp analogy and the downshifting analogy, which I think really applied to me and to most people. I mean, unless you're incredibly talented, you will hit some bumps in your road and you will not be able to cope, or at least you think you can't cope. And I certainly have been there. When I had, uh, I had a couple of uh, two wonderful children uh, and this wonderful husband, but I, I was overwhelmed uh, with all of that when young and young children, if you've ever had any, mm-hmm. uh, or, or if you will, it's, it's a very challenging time. And I had a big job, a fairly, um, well, I had a difficult job for me. I was a portfolio manager, an analyst, and a research person. Again, really in the wrong space for me in, in the banks. And I was going to quit. Uh, I just couldn't do it all. And uh, th- this wonderful mentor I've told you about who said I made, you know, we made a whole person came to me and said, well, you know, maybe you shouldn't be doing the, exactly this role because it's not the right fit, i.e. it's too hard for you. And I said, well, you know, what What else is there kind of thing? I mean, that, this is in shorthand. And so I moved. I left and instead of I left that role, but instead of quitting, I was able to downshift. And for me, that meant doing what was easy for me, which was client services and marketing. And um, and so that's what I did. And my advice to people my to my 21 year old self now would be, you know, really try hard not to quit because once you do, you're competing with people who haven't and their confidence is better or greater than mine would have been anyway if I'd quit. Their skills were sharper. Their new knowledge was sharper. Their contacts in the firm were sharper. And getting back in there at that level or at any level was going to be really tough. And so, I mean, sometimes you have to quit. Obviously, if you have a sick child, you have a sick parent, you have some situation that you just cannot, you just cannot go on and do together. That's, that makes sense. And I fortunately didn't have that. I had a lot of luck otherwise. This story um, hits really close to home. I also, when I had a young child, hit a point, I was mm-hmm. working full time, where I just, Nothing was working except work. And my family needed more of me. I needed mm-hmm. to not be so split. I went mm-hmm. to the president of UArts at the time and I said, I'm, I'm scared that I have to quit because I don't know how to juggle mm-hmm. this. And similarly, and it was a he, said, why don't we instead change your role? And mm-hmm. I went part time. And it not only kept me in the game for all those strategic mm-hmm. reasons, but it enabled me to continue working in a way that I found personally rewarding, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. gave me my happy place mm-hmm. while I was struggling with other things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it taught me to speak up and to ask for help as you need it. Mm-hmm. You did this at a time when there weren't, you know, like we talked about, there weren't a lot of mentors. There weren't mm-hmm. a lot of women in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you feel about going to your mentor to have this conversation? Mm-hmm. And did it change the way that you approached asking for help afterwards? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Um, I think so. I think at, by that point, I had developed, I had built up a lot, some credibility. You know, if you have, if you're able to have been in a job for a couple of years, and people, you know, you have friends slash colleagues slash mentors. Um, 
you know, it's much easier to do. I mean, I think if you come into a job and in six months you say, I need to work part-time, it's, it's or interviewing part-time I know is difficult. Because uh, you haven't earned the trust yet. Right. And they don't know you. And it's much easier to hire a full-time person. You know, they think, oh, is this person going to be difficult? I have no idea what they're thinking. But <laughs> in any case, that's a digression. I, I was able to do that because I'd been there for a while. And I also think, frankly, um, this is a show in part for women, but for all people. But I think today we're very much luckier. Um, we we seem to trade at a premium in many places. Uh, women and people who had been less common in a place like where I was, they're very good to us often. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously you have to be good. You have to be a, you have to be someone people want to be on a team with. You have to be effective, but all the, if, assuming you're all those things and you work hard and do all that, I mean, you, you don't want to trade on being a woman or another sort of, um, underrepresented person. But if you check those boxes, People want to try, really try hard to keep you, and they'll stand on their head to keep you. This is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and today I get to talk with Elizabeth Vale, <laughs> Distinguished Fellow at the University of Pennsylvania's Fellows Institute of Government, as well as Senior Managing Director at Promontory Interfinancial Group. So during this period of time, Elizabeth, when you've now downshifted and you're in a role that actually suits you better. No, much better. Um, I'm guessing it was still mm -hmm. a big load to work, run mm -hmm. a household, mm -hmm. um, be an engaged partner, mm -hmm. have kids. Mm -hmm. um, did downshifting do it for you or did you need help in other mm -hmm. places? So I was very lucky. I married someone who was uh, extremely supportive of me um, and believed in me as well. In fact, I, when I tried to quit once, I remember to stay home with my children. He said, no, you can't do that. You will drive yourself and all of us crazy. <laughs> and he was dead right. He knew me very well. And my children later said, oh, thank God you didn't do that, mother, when they were adults, because I would have poured all of this ambition and, and competitiveness into them and driven them probably over the edge. But um, also, and it wasn't about the money. I wasn't making much money at that time early on in my banking career, you know, commercial bank, not making a lot. So it wasn't that he wanted my money, my income. It was that he knew I was going to really be more, it was more. It was your much, sanity? I mean, well, that, his, his, his lifestyle. Yeah. I mean, not his lifestyle, his, um, his sanity. Anyway. So what I did was I had, I had some luck clearly. I don't mean to say everybody can do this. It's just a picnic. It is hard. And looking back now, I kind of look back through, through decades, frankly, into my thirties when that was, and it looked, it looks easier now, but it's really hard. So I don't mean to under, underestimate that for people or minimize it. But a couple of things I often tell people is hire help. I learned to hire help. I mean, unless you think you absolutely, or unless you love to fold laundry or you love to cook or you love to clean your house, you know, hire help if you can, mm -hmm. because first of all, you'll, you'll be a small business employer, which will make someone else happy and give them some income and maybe, you know, a role and, and ability to support their family. But also you can survive and you can do it. But people, particularly women often think we have to do it all. I can't, you know, this, I don't look strong enough. I can't, I, you just, you need help. And, um, and that's fine. That's great. And that's a wise leverage of you and use of your income. You had mentioned you are um, determined, you're ambitious. Mm -hmm. um, where do you rate on the perfectionist scale? Uh, that's interesting. I actually am quite a perfectionist at work because I climbed, you know, I'm not going to say I climbed some huge mountains, but I was in very um, challenging places. I, I didn't work kind of, I mean, I worked, I aimed high. 
in, mm-hmm. in the places I worked. And I, I can talk about those brands, can I? I mean, of course. So they, you, you know, they were Morgan Stanley and then the White House and then um, some very significant, well, at this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was a startup um, part of the Obama administration, which was actually a real um, highlight of his of his mission. And so anyway, I was at places that were hard. Um, and therefore, you know, I think I had to be a perfectionist there and I learned to be a perfectionist. I mean, you don't have typos and memos to the president and yeah. you just don't do it. It doesn't work out well for you. <laughs> um, and so I'm much more of a perfectionist there than at home. And I think that's easier in any case. Home is hard to be when you have little kids and you have a husband and you've, I've always had two or three dogs. I mean, you just, you just got to let some of it go. And I think that's healthier. It is. And also, I think it's critical to enabling the help that comes your way, whether mm-hmm. it's friends, your mm-hmm. partner, whether it's people yep. you hire, that if you're not such a perfectionist, you're more likely to find satisfaction and have those systems work. Right. Well, at Morgan Stanley, when I was a, in uh, portfolio management, I was a value equity investor. And the key there is uh, buying cheap stocks that have very low expectations built into them. So I've always been a value investor in life, which is low expectations are easier to exceed. So except for for myself, I have very high expectations for myself. But for other people, you know, I'm not saying I would let things go, but I'm saying, you know, why get angry and raise your blood pressure over somebody who's not, you know, achieving what you might have? Um, Yeah, low expectations are easier to exceed. So we have um, a little over a minute before we take our first break. And I have a question that we can then follow up with in the second half hour. Um, While you were, even though you had downshifted, you've referred to this period of time as the golden handcuffs. Oh, yeah. So um, first, and we'll talk about what happened when you took them off. Mm -hmm. But you said that you should have shed them earlier Mm -hmm. than you did. What made you hold back for so long? Mm -hmm. So um, I just didn't get it, really. I think um, I, well, first, I grew up with financial insecurity. That's more than you need to know about my childhood. But we had enough for education, and that was kind of about it. And so I always wanted I always wanted to create financial security for myself. I didn't want to be dependent. I had a wonderful mother who didn't go to college and hadn't didn't have the financial independence to depart if she ever wanted uh, the marriage. It, it ended up being fine. But in any case, I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to ever be dependent. And uh, I wanted, you know, actually that Morgan Stanley, the first mentor I told you about, always said to me, Elizabeth, you must have your own money. Money buys degrees of freedom. Mm-hmm. And so making money, you know, people feel badly. Oh, I, have, I shouldn't lead with I need to make some money. You need to make money if unless you inherit it or marry it. So I always wanted to have financial independence. And what that meant, unfortunately, though, is that I stayed too long because I was making a good income after a while. You can imagine at Morgan Stanley and I I was actually in banking for a lot of years, probably more than I should have, but I didn't, I hadn't figured out my passion quite yet. I was beginning to incubate it along the edge. And so I didn't really have that thing to jump to. And so meantime, I raised my children. It was a valuable chapter and I believe in chapters. The chapter was very valuable, produced two glorious human beings. And um, therefore it was worth doing at the time. Clearly. And we're going to close this chapter for a moment while we take a short break. But stay with us. We're going to continue our discussion with Elizabeth Vale in just a few minutes. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, here on Sirius XM 132. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio. Here again is Laura Zarrow. 
Welcome back to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, and my guest today is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Vale. She is the Senior Managing Director at Promontory Interfinancial Group, as well as a Distinguished Fellow here at the University of Pennsylvania's Fells Institute of Government. But that doesn't really do her justice. She's many things, but most of all, a guest here today. So, Elizabeth, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laura. So before the break, you had walked us through um, really this your journey from the moment that you kind of graduated from college, stepped into finance, found yourself in, you know, the extrovert in you, which led you to a happier career and a more sustainable one. Mm-hmm. And we're just talking to us about your golden handcuffs, mm-hmm. about, you know, that you stayed a little too long in that role in finance mm-hmm. because, you know, it was comfortable. It was making other things possible. But I gather it wasn't making something inside of you sing. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about when you realized it was time to go and what you left finance for. Mm-hmm. So I'd been lucky in a way to, I had incubated what I call incubated a second career along the side that was, that didn't pay me a nickel, but I'd studied at Harvard, I studied government. That was my major. And so I always was intrigued with politics and I did work briefly for John Hines, our senior senator at the Senate. And that I caught Potomac fever, which is an expression you probably, (laughs) some of you may know, but it's a funny one. Catching Potomac fever, I guess, obviously means that you have lived in Washington and you really want to be there and go back. And it's an addictive kind of feeling. Uh, it's a very rewarding place sometimes to be. So I, I actually went home to a different city, had my children, but I always wanted to go back. And so in between, I, as I said, I incubated this passion, which, which grew and grew, and I finally had one to jump to, and that was supporting uh, pretty significant candidates. Um, and I did that along the side of my Morgan Stanley career, and I just learned, oh, my God, this really feels good. This feels really exciting, and it's, it's immediate, and it's, and in my view, important, and these people could really make a difference. And again, I could make a difference to them because I could do things they didn't want to do and maybe enable them, God willing, to get elected. It's, it sounds like a perfect use of the extrovert in you. Yeah, and again, I just sort of felt my way there. But it it uh, it combined that knowledge that I then had that that I was pretty decent at that and not at other stuff. And then secondly, um, I just learned that I love working for very significant people who I admire and I but I'm not really like. I want to be near them and, again, the BASF thing, try and make them better or take away from them what they didn't have time to do, didn't want to do, or, you know, it really wasn't their best and highest use. Um, It's funny digression. My CEO at Morgan Stanley, when I left, said to me, always do what you are uniquely qualified to do and let others do the rest. It was the most wonderful advice. I'll never forget it. Uh, You know, and so what I was, what they were, I I was not uniquely qualified to be their their outside person, their extrovert, their liaison person is what I was called. But uh, I I was qualified to do that. So I think that's great advice. Do what you are uniquely qualified to do and let others do the rest. So with that, I was going to ask, you have... Um, excellent education, outstanding professional credentials. You were in the halls of a lot of influential places and people. Mm-hmm. Did you ever aspire to be number one? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, no, and I learned that later in life too. And people have often said to me, oh, you should run for office. You should be the head of this or that. And I always knew in myself that I didn't want to be that person. And again, it's a little bit like wanting to be comfortable and protected and you know, whatever, you feel a little bit 
uh, small in saying that or realizing that, but now I know it. I, I love being number two to, to a big number one. Um, I mean, again, these are pretty significant people I was lucky to be around. And so so being number two to them was perfectly <laughs> fine. And and it worked. It just that's where I was making the difference. And again, I I I felt my way to that point. I was magnetized to that to that point. And and now I'm proud of it. And I, I know that's where I add the most value. And I, I you know, that's where I'm that's where I'm most uniquely qualified and to I want Part of why I want to bring this into higher relief is because you even, in a kind of self-deprecating way, say, was it about being protected? Mm-hmm. And there are times when fear keeps us from stepping into roles that we otherwise want. Mm-hmm. But I think what's so – what I can relate to personally mm-hmm. and I think is meaningful mm-hmm. about what you did is that – these different roles can allow us to unleash our impact by helping other people mm-hmm. be impactful. Mm-hmm. And that if that's a place where you thrive and mm-hmm. shine, mm-hmm. that's an amazing thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's true. And actually, when you said that, something just occurred to me, which I'd never thought of. And that is, in a way, this sounds arrogant, but in a way, I'm motivated to protect them. And that's I, what a good number two does. Well, I just it just came into my head when you said that, because not only was I protecting myself early on, but I want to make them better, i.e. there's something almost motherly about my feeling for them. I mean, I so admire and love, in a way, love them. I mean, when I worked for, for President Obama, I just so admired him, and he took so much on his shoulders. And similarly, Elizabeth Warren, and uh, who I've been able to work with, and that's just such an honor. And I so... I'm so grateful to them for what they took on and the water they carried for all of us. Even if you disagree with a lot of what they did or some of what they did, they try so hard. And I just want to help them because I so admire that. And uh, and in a way, that's protecting of them. But I, I love being able to – that's very – that feels really good. It's very empowering. So I want to backtrack a little bit so that we can keep moving with the chronology of mm-hmm, things. And then mm-hmm. we're going to jump ahead because i got a few questions about mm-hmm. your time at the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned before that you were incubating this career. Mm-hmm. Was was that about the ways that you helped um, advance other candidates? How did you – what mm-hmm. was that incubation? How mm-hmm. did you put your toes in the water and mm-hmm. build the relationships? Mm-hmm. So when I worked for John Hines, I uh, got to know Bill Bradley, actually, Senator Bradley from New Jersey. He happened to sit on the Finance Committee, Senate Finance Committee, with, which John Hines also sat on. And I was 27 years old. I was a kid. And I used to um, sit – I was a, a – a, legislative assistant in the economic sphere, which is really hilarious because I was such a kid, but on the Hill, you get amazing experience young. (laughs) Anyway, um, and I used to sit behind John Hines on the finance committee and Bill Bradley was on it. And I just, I, again, I so admired him. I knew who he was, you know, famous New York Nick from New Jersey and ended up being a three-term senator, 18 years, and then ran for president. Anyway, he just happened to be really nice to me. And he, I think he looked on me as his little sister or something. So I became his friend. And he looked after me in a very kind way. And uh, and so anyway, fast forward in the year 2000, when he ran for president, I had stayed in touch. We had stayed in touch a little bit. And he and I, I traveled a little bit with him. I, I took a leave from Morgan Stanley and I worked for him when he ran for president, not on his payroll, but just a volunteer. But I was in Iowa with him and New Hampshire with him and various other places. I remember taking him to a Teamsters conference in Atlantic City or staffing <laughs> him anyway. But in any case, that was this long winded. But that was Bill, Bill Bradley was my first real person who I thought, oh my, and he's an introvert, by the way, um, real person who I was able to 
put this to work, this combination of my uh, my people skills, uh, so to speak, and my passion for politics. And so that really, I mean, there there went my Potomac fever. It just went into another whole gear. <laughs> and so, but Bill Bradley went down in 2000. And then I was home in Philadelphia. I helped Ed Rendell a little bit. He's a friend of most everyone in the state. But he, um, so when he ran, you know, he was mayor and governor here. And then, uh, and then, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of what you're asking, but no. then I met Senator Obama at a dinner in Philadelphia way before he ran. And he really wasn't well known then. And I just, I was seated near him at a dinner and I just thought, okay, this is my guy. Oh my goodness. I mean, I just thought he was that amazing person. You don't spend much time with him and you don't realize that. And so that's how I really got connected to him. And then I just threw myself at his campaign in 08 when he ran. How did you throw yourself in the campaign? And I asked specific uh, personal reason. Mm-hmm. My daughter is passionate about politics, mm-hmm. wants to get involved mm-hmm. in campaigning, mm-hmm. um, wants to help you know, make the world a better place mm-hmm. and sees that you know politics are an important avenue for that mm-hmm. as noisy as it mm-hmm. can be. Yeah. How did you get involved in the campaign? So now, granted, you had some inside connections, but still. Well, I really didn't actually from what I did. I mean, I had met him, but I didn't use that. Um, it was intimidating to think of using that. Instead, I ble- you know that hokey kind of expression, bloom where you are planted? I bloomed yeah. where I was planted. I happen to have a large house in Montgomery County, Pennsylvania, which really matters in these elections. As you know, one of the five counties around Philadelphia is Bellwether and very significant, big county. And so I had this house. My children had gone to college and I thought, you know, I'm just going to give it to the campaign. I mean, there's all sorts of detail before that. I went and I had a phone bank in South Carolina in a, a um, in an elementary school, and the person who ran my little Obama group phone banking in South Carolina with my college roommate is why, why I went, um, said to me, oh, you're from Philadelphia. We need to live up there. We're, we're, um, Jeremy Bird, who ran field for Obama, this, she was the lieutenant of his, she said, after we do South Carolina, which was a huge win for Obama. And Jeremy Bird had really orchestrated a lot of that. Um, after we do this, we have to, we're going to go do Maryland, and then we're coming up to Philadelphia, and we need a place to live for the primary in February. Do you know anywhere we could live? And there were 15 of them, and I did have a large home with a lot of empty bedrooms. And so I said, oh, you can live with me. My husband, meantime, is Republican. He later thought that was sort of interesting. He ended up loving them all. But anyway, long-winded. So they all moved into my house, and it was really cool, and they, they were there for almost two months. So there's a couple of details in this that I think are interesting and important to point Mm -hmm. out was that some of the work you did was just making the phone calls in the phone bank Mm -hmm. and giving people a place to Mm -hmm. stay and that those Mm -hmm. are things that really do Mm -hmm. matter on a campaign. Oh, absolutely. Well, again, I had this house and I thought, oh, I'll give them that. And then I said, oh, I have a car. You can have that. They ended up driving my old Volvo into the dump heap. (laughs) My son has never forgotten that. I did that to him. But anyway, um, yeah, no, that's another thing. People say, oh, why are you doing field work, you know, which is sort of opening offices and making coffee and housing people. And I said, I want to do whatever he needs. I ha- He needed this. They needed this. And they really needed what I had. I happened to have an asset in my home that I, I could, in a way, give to the campaign. And I did. I mean, if it had been something else, I would have tried to fix that or make that happen. Or, But that's what they needed. And I happened to 
have it. So I did bloom where I'm planted. I, people said, oh, you need to be on the Economic Policy Committee. And I'm like, no, I'm doing field work. Thank you. And I love it. And these kids in my house were just absolutely fabulous. And it sounds like the real value here was that you didn't go to it with a personal agenda about how to be important. You went with an agenda mm-hmm. of how to help. And if the help mm-hmm. was making coffee, you yep. made coffee. If it was mm-hmm. housing people, you housed people. Yep. But then a phone call eventually mm-hmm. came that invited you to do a little bit more than that. Well, that's right. So then <laughs> I was lucky I uh, with actually a Penn friend of mine here. Um, I was asked to co-chair Pennsylvania for Obama for women, for women. And we chair, we co-chaired Pennsylvania for women. And Valerie Jarrett came to uh, Philadelphia in October. It was, I remember it was Columbus Day weekend. And they had an event in Philadelphia at a law firm with, a, it was a women's event and a law firm in Philadelphia. And I was asked to introduce her. Uh, so does that co-chaired this thing for, which was just really a title. But anyway, I introduced Valerie there and to this group of big group of women lawyers and um, or women, I guess it was just women at a law firm. And we just hit it off. And again, she's an introvert, <laughs> fabulous human being, but she is brilliant. A, she's oh, she's amazing, but she is an introvert. She will tell you that um, in a good sense. In any case, we hit it off very well. And, and we spent two hours together at the end of which she said, look, if we win, I'd love to bring you to the White House as my business, our business liaison. That's in shorthand. That's kind of how it evolved. And so I, I said, oh, my goodness, this is my opportunity maybe to leave my golden handcuffs. And so they did win. And I got a phone call from her. And she said, OK, you know, will you come to, will you come to be our business liaison? That is that's an incredible phone call to get. Yes. Um, this is Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. I'm Laura Zarrow, and I am talking with Elizabeth Vale from Penn's Fells Institute of Government. So when you got this phone call, did you did this feel real to you? Like, hi, come work in the White House. Well, I was just so excited. And I, I'm, you know, maybe digression, but another side of my being ambitious and competitive I I think in a good sense, mostly with myself, is I, the other side of that coin, I think, is jealousy. And I have often, I learned a while back in a couple of other decisions that I make my best decisions. This is crazy. Okay, you're going to think I'm crazy. But when I think, okay, where would I be more jealous if I weren't? Or of whom would I be more jealous if they did something and I didn't do that job? And so I I almost couldn't not go. I almost couldn't. Like you would have killed yourself afterwards if you had missed the opportunity. I I think I would have been just miserable. I mean, I had a really good job at Morgan Stanley. It was financially incredibly secure. I had this lovely home in, in suburban Philadelphia. I had a great family and I just was bored. And I, I, I knew I had to do it. It was jumping out of my airplane, but I really, I just didn't care. And I knew I probably had a parachute. I had a parachute. And so again, I was lucky. I'd, I was older and I had my, keep your health, by the way. I had kept my health, thank God. And <laughs> so I could have another chapter yeah. and the time was right. But yeah, I I, um, I knew I had to do it. I would have died if someone else had that job. <laughs> I love that you framed it as jealousy. I think of it as I regret the things I haven't done more than I regret yeah. some of the bad choices I made. Well, that's a nicer way to say it. <laughs> Probably. Jealousy is an ugly. It's one of the seven deadly sins, isn't no, it? No, but it's, it's once again, it's real. And we <clears throat> all feel it. And to use it as information mm-hmm. and not as a weapon mm-hmm. is a really beautiful mm-hmm. way to turn that around. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a really good thing to know about yourself. Again, this is not everybody. And the probably people out there thinking, oh, this woman is 
not me or a lunatic <laughs> or something, but um, but it's me. And so you need to know what motivates you, what really motivates you, and what in what place have you been most energized and most alive and felt like that you were adding the greatest value. And that's going to be different for everybody because we're so unique. But for, I know for me now the pattern, and I, I feel it when it's this person who is making a big difference in the world, who I admire, who I can be near, who I can hopefully make better. That's where I want to be, and now I really make a beeline to that role. And boy, was it a good decision. Oh, it was a great decision. And it was actually at that point an easy decision. It was just black and white. But it was hard. I had to leave my home. I had to get an apartment in Washington. I had to commute. I was gone five or six nights a week for years. And how much time passed from when you got the call till your first day at work? About a day. Actually, I think I flew down. Yeah, I think I, I, I happened to be in Boston when I got the call doing something, and I... I flew down the next day from Boston. I'm pretty sure it was Im- immediate. Yeah, there's no time to waste. Immediate. It was the very, very, it was, I'll tell you, it's February 4th of 2009. So he'd come in on Jan 20. I, I got there. I can tell you it was February 4th. I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so I have images like from movies in my head and I'm thinking about mm-hmm. the the terrifying, delightful mm-hmm. glow of mm-hmm. knowing you're on the way to the White House. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you mm-hmm. set foot in there for your first mm-hmm. day? Oh, it's it's. Uh, oh, I think had I known how hard it would be, I wouldn't have had the courage to do it. Honestly, <laughs> it was the hardest thing I ever did. And and you ask anyone who was in that early White House, I mean, uh, transition. You know, the Bush folks had tried very hard to give us a transition, but it's almost impossible. You start from nothing. It's another start. It's a startup. The Obama campaign was a startup. This was a startup. My CFPB was a startup. Everything I kind of learned, I loved them, was a startup. But the White House really was. And as you may remember, well, I was in the business lane. And the world was ending in the financial markets. Right. In fact, I kind of had. And when I was at Morgan Stanley, we nearly globally went under in the financial system. And I don't even exaggerate. Morgan Stanley was the next domino that was going to fall when I was there in October. And then Goldman was going to – it was just a terrifying time. So it's it was particularly stressful where I was. I was trying – in a, not a senior, senior way, but there are not a lot of people in the White House. So there's kind of Larry Summers and then a bunch of us right under him. And uh, it, anyway, I'm rambling, but it was very, very hard. I think any new White House is very hard because, like, you don't even have Post-it notes usually or, like, envelopes with the right stationery. And let, I mean, just right. every it's little thing. It's funny because that's the startup thing. It's yeah. like a blank yeah. slate it's and a, you got to get systems in place. Yeah, absolutely. And there, there is a lot of help. I mean, the admin, you know, a lot of the uh, permanent staff has been there, not in the White House, but in the agencies. But anyway, I'll just say a quick Peggy Noonan quote, which um, was just a wonderful quote. Um, Peggy Noonan wrote a book. I think it's called What I Learned in the Revolution, something like that. I don't have it right in my head, but something like What I Learned in the Revolution when she wrote for Reagan. And in this book is a great chapter on what it's like to work in the West Wing. And she has this amazing quote. And again, I'm not going to get it exact. So don't forgive me, Peggy. I don't have it in front of me. It's something like... When you work in the West Wing, it's the most amazing time, and you meet you meet incredible people there at the top of America and the top of their game, but they're like soldiers in a war, too busy to stop and think what they will later. This is the vivid time. This is when I'm living my life. Oh, my God. And that's, that's what it is. That's exactly what it, you cannot. I used to get 60 to 80 emails an hour with one intern because when we did bill signings, it was also the beginning when President Obama had the Senate in the House. Right. So we did every, it's when they did everything. I mean, I don't so know. There's a lot of work Minimize to do. what they did later, but we passed all the legislation like the health care bill. Dodd-Frank, I worked closely on, which was the Wall Street reform, which created Elizabeth Warren's Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I mean, I can't tell you what it's like getting a, 
super tanker to move or like a 747 off the ground. I mean, it's just from, from nothing to create that really quickly because the world really was ending in the financial markets particularly. And so I want to make sure I'm understanding what the work itself was because it sounds like you were this bridge between businesses and government and trying to understand what each needed in order to solve these problems and thrive together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't mean to overstate my job by any stretch of the imagination, but I was, I was called the business liaison. I was also called executive director of the White House Business Council, which which we created. Uh, the president and Valerie chose the 12 agencies initially. We ended up being 15, but 12 agencies which were most relevant to business. And they said, please, will you create a business council? So we created this White House Business Council. I was called executive director. And we had a representative from each of those 12 agencies, which were who you would think, Treasury and small business and et cetera, the ones you would think would be most relevant. There were 12 of them initially. And so what we did was we illustrated what the president and his team, people like Larry and Tim Geithner, were proposing, and also in healthcare and other areas that were, were very relevant to business uh, and small business, et cetera. We would, we would find out what they were doing, what they were thinking, and on a weekly call and in between on emails, we would, I would communicate with these agencies what they were thinking, what they were doing. So it was a two-way street, and then we would hear from them, I would hear from them as well, what they were doing, what they were working on, and I would funnel that back to my, my team at Treasury and the White House, or our team, I should say. So I was really a go-between. I was a honeybee. I don't mean to say I set the policy at all again. Hopefully it was a BASF ad. Hopefully we made it a little better. (laughs) But we illustrated a lot. I mean, a lot of my job was illustrating. So, for example, with the Dodd-Frank, what what became the Wall Street Reform Dodd-Frank bill, we had what we called real people. And we meant that in the best sense of the word. We used to call them RPs, real people. And uh, President Obama and Elizabeth Warren, people like that would say to me, please get me real people to illustrate. And so he and his economic team would 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 put together what we proposed, what they proposed would be in the Dodd-Frank, eventually in Dodd-Frank. And my my job was to in, many times go through the letters to the president. We, he got thousands a week and pull for keywords, which would be fixed if we got this legislation passed. So I would find a real person who who actually had an issue, a problem, a, a real issue, for example, with mortgage fraud, credit card fraud, student loan fraud, debt fraud, um, payday lenders uh, who'd taken advantage of, of the most vulnerable, and find someone who had, who would be fixed, or not fixed, whose problem would be fixed had this bill been in, in passed. And we would have them stand behind the president at the bill signing. So when, that's how those people were found. Yes. Well, and they're they're like needles in a haystack. You really want to find someone who's going to vet. Obviously, you don't want that. Was it John the Plumber? Was that guy who uh, let some other president down? Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, we, we had to be very careful that they not only match the policy exactly so that we wouldn't be accused of some other situation. You know, they had to exactly match what was proposed or passed in the bill. And then we had to make sure they really were good eggs, you know, that they vetted properly right. and were decent, decent people. So it, <clears throat> you came out of a period of downshifting. Mm-hmm. To a period of getting mm-hmm. in gear super fast mm-hmm. to be at the highest levels, you know, working in the big arena. Mm-hmm. Personally, how did mm-hmm. you gear up? How did you? Sw- it sounds like you've always mm-hmm. been. Even your husband joked, you know, mm-hmm. it's good that you had a real job. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What was that process of gearing mm-hmm. up like for you? And um, what advice would you give mm-hmm. to other people who get this amazing launch into a second big chapter? Mm-hmm. 
Well, it was really, as I said, it was uh, harder than I had any idea it would be because I'd always had either a secretary or an assistant or part of one. And I'd always had like interns or, um, uh, you know, colleagues. I had junior people. I'd never been alone with such a huge, huge uh, amount of work. Because the volume, there are very few people in the West Wing, actually. There are only, I believe, 200 or so people who have any kind of significant job there. And they tend to have, you know, they obviously have the agencies, uh, the rest of the administration that you can, that can help you. But there are not a lot of people there, <laughs> not a lot of people there. And the thank God they're White House interns because I had six interns. You get them each for four months, and they're incredibly talented young people, incredibly talented. Thank God for the interns. I always had one at a time. So what did I do? I mean, I just put one foot in front of the other. It was just a, you know, trite expression, drinking from a fire hose. It was just shocking, (laughs) shocking pressure and volume. I mean, if you thought you had an agenda when you went in in the morning, just forget it. You, (laughs) things came at you just I can't even explain it. It was uh, it was difficult. I mean, we used to often have lunch at four four o'clock, maybe. I mean, and someone would run down. There was this uh, caf- cafeteria in the bottom of the executive office building called Ike's, and they closed at four, so we'd get there at three minutes of four. You know, <laughs> anyway, it's silly. The other thing, this is another sort of small thing, but I would I've never in my life had to go to the gym every morning or every day to sweat. And it doesn't sound attractive, but I actually had to do that to get through my job. I have As never way of managing the stress. I have, yep, I have never had to actually. I had to go to the gym, even just half an hour, get on a, some aerobic machine and drip, because I could do the job. Then I know it's crazy. You could sleep well. No, it's real. I mean, and the emails never stopped. You had to, you had to make yourself turn off your BlackBerry at two in the morning because they were going to come in from then. They were going to start again at, at six, maybe not even before that. And you had to really, you were running a race physically that meant you had to take care of yourself. Well, on that note, we have to wrap it up. Elizabeth, I could talk to you all day. Thank you so much for joining us. It's wonderful well, to learn all this so from nice. you. You're so nice. Thank you, Laura, for having me. And I hope I didn't overstate my roles in any of these places. I just, mostly they were helping other people, and I was so lucky to have them. If anything, I think you understated it. <laughs> no. So thank you so much for joining us, and thank you, for everyone, for listening today. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. I'm at Laura's Arrow, and you can also find the podcast of the show on iTunes. Um, I'd like to thank my beloved producer, Patty Hall, my excellent sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Laura's Arrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Have a great week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 